0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio in St. Louis is Joe Manis and our special guest, the first Southeast Missourian we've ever had on the show. This is Todd Richardson. Glad to be your first official Southeast Missourian.
1: Yeah, House Majority Leader.
0: And not only are you the first Southeast Missourian, you are a, our first Poplar Bluffian as well. I don't know if that's the plural for for that. but I think Poplar Bluffian is correct, so you, yeah. you nailed it. <laughs> not, not to do some name-dropping here, although by saying that I think I am, but I actually was roommates with somebody from Poplar Bluff when I was in college, and he was friends with Greg Hansborough, who is the brother of— Poplar Bluff legend Tyler Hansborough, um, I got to be in his car where there were all these like letters from various colleges, begging Tyler Hansborough to go to their various colleges. So um, I know Poplar Bluff pretty well, believe it or not. Poplar Bluff
2: very proud of the uh, of the Hansborough brothers, and uh, both both very successful. And uh, by extension, you now have. Unfortunately, a lot of North Carolina fans uh, in Bluff, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. We'll forgive them for that. But just tell me a little bit
0: where your district is um, before we ask you kind of about how you got into politics.
2: Well, sure. If you if you left uh, if you left the Bush Stadium in St. Louis and you drove about 150 miles due south until you get to. Almost to Arkansas, you'd end up uh, right in the middle of, of Popper Bluff. I represent uh, the city of Popper Bluff and uh, kind of the northern, uh, excuse me, the southern half of Butler County and the northern third of, of Dunklin County in the Boot Bootheel. Tell me a little bit about how
0: you got involved in politics and just your background um before where'd you grow
1: up
2: before you decided to run yeah i grew up in popper bluff lived in uh missouri most of my life and uh moved off to tennessee to, to go to college and uh, where'd,
1: you, where'd you go to
2: college went to college at the university of memphis uh got my undergraduate degree and my law degree there uh and then uh after i finished law school and my wife finished graduate school we both decided to move back home she's also uh from Popper Bluff and so it was one of our great desires to be able to move back home and be close to to family and uh, so that's what we were able to do. We moved back to Popper Bluff in about uh, 2007 um, and then uh, a few years later decided to uh, to run for the house.
0: Yes, you ran in a contested primary in 2010 which in Poplar Bluff is basically the election because it's a very Republican part of Southeast Missouri.
2: Right. It um, is, yeah. My district's a little different now than it was, in, you know, in 2010 with redistricting. But yeah, most of the race there was was in the primary. And uh,
0: spoiler alert, as I always say, you ended up winning that primary. Yes. And I don't, I don't think you've had a tough election since. No, I've been very not...
2: fortunate to, to not have uh, to not have a contested race since then. The last two election cycles and. Uh, yeah, it's been, uh, after a long, uh, hard primary and a general in 2010, it's been kind of nice to to not have to go through that campaign.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things that you brought to the table that was probably different from a lot of your freshman colleagues in 2011 is your father, Mark Richardson, was in the Missouri House. And he was actually in leadership at a time when the Republicans were in the minority I'm interested of what that experience kind of taught you before you entered politics and kind of what it's teaching you now that you're in leadership yourself as the House majority leader.
2: Well, yeah, Jason, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, the first thing, you know, that that it taught me, my dad served in the House for for 12 years and growing up in in a family that participates in in public service, it left me with, you know, a really strong sense that good people in, in public office. Uh, can make a difference and you know that's something I think some people find hard to believe anymore uh, which is unfortunate because I, I, I do believe that's still true. I believe good people in public office can can have a positive impact and, and so for me growing up in that environment you know very much uh, left with the sense that, that public service was a, a noble goal and, and something worth worth pursuing. But it really has been interesting as I've had the opportunity to, to move into leadership and my colleagues have, have put their trust in me to be the floor leader is to, you know, remember some of the lessons for uh, how the House was run when the political landscape was was pretty much the opposite uh, of what it is now. And, you know, I think it's it's an important reminder for me to, to say, you know, all of the things that, that Republicans didn't like about the way uh Democrats ran the chamber are good lessons for us and how to use this majority. And I think if you look at, at our track record both this session and in the last couple of years, we've tried to make sure that we have more civil dialogue uh in the House than than certainly was present in, in some parts of the nineties. And to recognize that that the minority has an important voice to bring to the table. Now, you know, we still uh with our majorities, we still have the ability to move our agenda, but that's not an excuse for, you know, sh- shutting out uh, the voices that disagree with us sometimes as well. I
0: was just going to say, I think if any Republican who served in the 90s were told that in 2015 there would be 117 Republicans in the House, they may have fainted, basically. I know that one person who's in the legislature now, Paul Wieland, who's a senator, was in that situation, he was. along with your father. And he told us on our show it actually influenced him as well. So it's it's definitely showcases how... What could be there at a certain point in Missouri history may not be the situation forever. Essentially,
1: yeah, things can change pretty quickly, they, especially they with redistricting. And who who has control? I think that has some major influence, and it's just the way it is.
2: Yeah, redistricting's had some influence, but I think it's also been you know a, a change in in you know a lot of Republican gains have been have happened in outstate Missouri. When my dad was elected in 1990, um, I think it, he was the uh, maybe the second or third republican out of the 8th congressional district uh, elected as a republican. Now you look at the 8th congressional district and there's only one democrat left. And so that transition in in rural Missouri from sort of the old uh, con, you know moderate to conservative uh, democrat has been a large part of of where the gains have. I remember when uh, and I was a teenager at the time but Republican's great hope was 82 and 92. That was their 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 slogan in 1992 and the thought that we could be at 117 seats now really is uh, really would have been outlandish to a lot of people who served back then.
0: Now, we've had house majority leaders on our show before, especially when uh, now Speaker Deal was house majority leader. But for people who haven't listened to those shows, what is exactly are your duties as house majority leader?
2: Yeah, well, some some people have described the role as as that of a traffic cop. And and there's certainly uh, there's certainly a lot of truth to that. You know, Missouri has the fourth-largest House of Representatives in, in the country, which means our floor activity is uh, is sometimes, uh, you know, it, it's a busy place out on the House floor. And so my, my role is, as the floor leader is to decide what legislation uh, is going to come up when it hits the calendar and in, in, in what order we're going to go to it. Um, so that that's a big responsibility, especially as we move into the, you know, kind of the meat of the legislative session as we are now with with a lot of bills coming through committee and a lot of bills on the calendar.
1: Now, the, the the meat of the session for our listeners is always the budget, right? because the General Assembly has to approve a budget. It's
2: the one constitutional responsibility we have.
1: And and this year, because of Amendment 10 passing, in part, uh, the General Assembly, at least the, many of the Republican leaders, decided to try to get it through earlier in order to, uh, in effect, force the governor to take action before the session ends so they could... Have make decisions on whether or not they agreed or disagreed with him on some points. And Amendment 10 does allow uh, some undisputed uh, override power that was disputed before. So with that as a backdrop and with 117 Republicans, although not everybody's on the same side on stuff, um, the budget fight as it's gone so far on the House side, um, speaking in general, are there anything? I mean, how do you think it's gone? Are there any particular issue areas where you think there's going to be uh, a battle with the with the Senate?
2: Well, I think the the House budget process went went fairly well. It's always a complicated process uh, to get through 13 budget bills and and to decide how you're going to to divvy up 26 plus uh, billion dollars. But I think overall, I'm very happy with with the product that the that the House put out, and I think it. It represents uh, really the house following through on what we said our priorities were going to be we have you know record funding for K through 12 education once again uh, funding that puts us in a place where every school district in the state is going to see an increase in funding Um, and I'm really proud to see that we prioritize higher education this year and and particularly community colleges you know for the first time um, the house has taken a position we put Um, a little over uh, $6 million into a line really designed specifically to go to community colleges. And we talk about economic development a a lot in the state. And if you look at at some of the things community colleges are doing in terms of workforce training and development, you know, those are things that that I think really the state gets a, a really good return on its investment there so I think the budget o- overall puts the priorities where where we need to be in terms of what the fights are going to be with the Senate you know I think it's a little little early to tell I don't expect there's going to be any any deep chasms between the house and the Senate but there are always differences
0: yeah there's always differences in that process but as Joe alluded to amendment 10 does kind of loom a little bit large here you were actually the handler of amendment 10 yeah. Back, uh, I guess, last year or the year before. How do you
2: think that's going to affect things down the road? Well, I think it, it, it's having the the impact already that that we wanted it to have, which is to bring some more certainty to our budget process, and to add a layer of of, of check and balance uh, on gubernatorial power that that wasn't there before. You know, when we make the decisions um, on how we're going to prioritize spending in the appropriations bills, I think people deserve to have you know some layer of certainty that what the legislature appropriated, assuming revenue is 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 where we expected it to be, is, is going to be spent and you know, frankly that that's not what we were seeing over the last several years. So Amendment 10 gives the legislature another another tool in the arsenal um, which is kinda how we designed it to be.
1: Now has the fight pretty much resolved itself as far as the current budget where there had been some uh, discussions uh, a month or six weeks ago uh, because I know the General Assembly. Some of the leaders are upset over some stuff that the governor has continued to to withhold, and there was a, there was some legal debate over whether or not Amendment right. 10 applied to the current budget or just to the budget going forward. Is is that fight pretty much resolved itself? Or yeah,
2: not? I think we still have have disagreements with the governor about some of his current withholds, um, and I think we're going to continue to to, to push for. His, his office to, to release those withholds and to, to live up to the, to the promise that we made uh, to folks on, on how we were going to spend our state's money. But I think the question of whether Amendment 10 is going to be used on, on withholds that were issued prior to its passage, prior to it taking effect, I think that question is largely passed. We're, we're looking uh, to this budget year and, uh, you know, look, looking at, at what we're going to do going forward, not going back.
1: Has the House ever passed a budget as early as it did this year? I, I mean, it was like it just, for our listeners, it was just yeah. a few days ago. Yeah, it's right? a faster yesterday. process.
2: I, I believe this is the earliest the House has ever passed the budget. And I asked some folks yesterday whether that was the case, and they they couldn't tell me for sure. But but certainly in the last uh, you know in the last you know few years, this has been by far. We're about three weeks ahead of schedule from where we normally are.
0: So let's talk about a couple of of big topics that are unresolved at this point. The one thing that I wanted to talk about first was a couple of labor-related issues. Now, the two things that have kind of popped up over the last few years is what is generally known as right to work, which bars um, uh, closed union shops, essentially, Mm -hmm. And uh, paycheck protection, which is another kind of moniker for a proposal, that
1: which which would re- bar um, automatic payroll deduction right. of union dues.
0: So what are okay? Obviously, right to work passed the House, I guess for the first time, and maybe the legislature's history, though not with a veto-proof majority. What's kind of the status of that, and and what's what have you talked with Senate leaders about what they plan to do with that piece of legislation?
2: Yeah, I think you know we were proud to get. To get that legislation out of the House, it was a piece of legislation that I supported and and was supported by you know 91 uh, other Republicans uh, in the House, um, and I, I think it was uh, you know somewhat of a historic uh, kind of vote. We've seen, you know, over the last several years, a number of states uh, that have adopted right to work as as a policy. And if you look at the states surrounding Missouri, um, you know, with the exception of, of Illinois, most of them are right to work states and you know, so I think there's a deep concern from people that it puts Missouri at a competitive disadvantage to the to the states around us in terms of what the prospects are in the Senate. To be honest with you, I don't I don't know. I, I know the Senate had a hearing on uh, their version of the right the Senate bill uh, on right to work this week, and so we'll see uh, whether whether that moves to the floor. I anticipate that it will. And um, you know, the Senate's a different animal from the House, um, as some of your listeners probably know. Uh, things move at a at a little different pace over there, so we'll see what that. Uh, how that debate unfolds and uh, whether they're able to get something out.
1: Will the paycheck bill get through the house or are you guys going to be doing other things first and see what happens with right to work in the Senate? Yeah, I
2: think the, the right to work's in the Senate right now. I don't believe the paycheck bills have, have moved uh, to the house calendar yet. And we'll spend at at least this week leading up to spring break, kind of working through some of the other issues on, on the calendar before uh, we get to that, that week break and, and then kind of go from there.
1: Uh, the, yeah, the photo ID bill. I mean, do yes. you, what um, what's going to happen with that at this point?
2: Well, it's you know it's a bill that's passed the House every year that I've been in the in the General Assembly, um, and once again the the House has sent it over to the Senate. Um, I think it's an open question as to whether they they can get it out. We did make some changes uh, in the bill this year. Uh, Representative Dogan uh, offered what I thought was a, a very good amendment to ensure that everyone can get not only uh, the photo ID. Uh, free of charge if they don't otherwise have one, but also access to the source documents they need free of charge. And I think that really addresses one of the major, you know, critiques of, of photo of photo ID in the past is that, you know, the state would be creating some type of barrier to getting an ID. And under the version of the House bill that, that we passed this year, it's just really not the case. Um, we're going to ensure that everyone has a has the ability to get an ID if they can't afford one to get one free of charge. And so I hope that that helps change the conversation in the Senate and we can we can move that that issue forward.
0: Now, one issue that is kind of big here in the St. Louis region is the future of the St. Louis Rams. Right. And it's a situation that is ever evolving. There seems to be a new development every single day. Like, for example, this week, a downtown Los Angeles stadium basically went kaput. And there are competing stadiums there which could have an effect on this process. Now, the reason the legislature is involved in this is one of the ways to finance this new stadium on the North Riverfront, at least for now, is to, quote unquote, extend bonds which are going to pay for the Edward Jones Dome currently. And there's been kind of a debate not only in St. Louis City and St. Louis County, but also the state of whether there needs to be another vote for that to occur. There's legislation from uh, Senator Ryan Silvey on that effect. I'd be interested to hear your your take on that situation and more generally what the legislative involvement is going to be in this entire situation.
2: Well, obviously, it's an issue the legislature is keeping a very close eye on. And, you know, per- personally speaking, as, you know, someone who enjoys sports in St. Louis, I believe St. Louis is an NFL caliber city, and, and I want us to continue to have, have an NFL team there. But at the same time, I have, you know, very deep concerns about publicly financing uh, an, another stadium. Um, I think there's is are very serious questions about whether the governor – can extend those bonds uh, without voter approval. Um, I think there are also very serious questions about whether the, the governor without a, a vote can obligate essentially future legislatures to to in essence force us to pay um, those bonds going forward. Um, so we're, we're going to take a hard look at that. And I will say that n- no one uh, has, has presented to me any kind of plan or explanation for how they would go about financing it. Uh, I know Representative Barnes uh, had uh, a lengthy hearing this week on kind of the economic impact, but it's an issue that that I know is a concern for a great many of my members um, and something we'll be paying close attention to as the session moves forward.
0: Is this one issue where this um, long-standing battle between rural and urban Missouri kind of comes into play? Because I know when we talk about stadiums, there's often a lot of rural legislators who come about and say, I don't think it makes a lot of sense for somebody in Oxvass or Poplar Bluff or Donovan to be paying for a stadium in St. Louis. Is, is that kind of another concern, not only with maybe you, considering you're a more rural legislator, but just Others in your caucus who who hail from outstate Missouri.
2: I, I think it's it's probably a little bit of the issue, but I, I really don't think it it's it's what's driving it. I mean, you have you know you brought up the example of Senator Sylvie. Senator Sylvie represents a, you know an urban part of the state and and has you know, very strong concerns about it. If you if you look at the polling on the issue, I'm sure uh, there would be more support in the St. Louis region for <coughs> excuse me funding uh, a stadium, but it, you also see. Uh, you know, pretty strong opposition in those areas, too. So I don't think it's an issue that breaks down purely on on an urban rural divide. But but certainly it's a, an issue that that a lot of my constituents have concerns about um, in terms of obligating the state, you know, for another 30 years on debt payment for a stadium when we haven't even finished paying off the the one we have now. What do you think the legislative
0: reaction would be if the governor basically extends the bonds by fiat and doesn't have the legislature involved? In well, it?
2: my guess is that there would be uh, a, a pretty quick court challenge to that action. But I think um, it—I think that's why you're seeing so much concern uh, out of the legislature. Is it puts the legislature in a in a very difficult position. Um, it puts us in a position where uh, we we would be forced to. Uh, You know, where the governor is essentially going to try to force us to make those those payments because nobody in the state wants to damage the AAA credit rating or or default on bond payments. So I think that's why, you know, I I hope the the governor uh, will include the legislature in in discussions on what he plans to do um, and avoid that kind of situation uh, next budget year or the one after that.
0: Now, another issue that has passed the Senate but has not made it to the House yet is uh, Senator Eric Schmidt's overhaul of right. the, the state's municipal courts. This is one of the, the many policy proposals that came about after uh, Ferguson unrest occurred. Um, I, I'm curious like, what the reaction to that legislation is in the House because when I was talking with, for example, the, one, the associate director of the Missouri Municipal League, they expressed some confidence that they were going to be able to either make a whole lot of changes to that bill in the House or stop it completely. Um, What's kind of your sense of where that bill is and what type of priority is it going to be for House leadership?
2: I I think it's absolutely a top priority for House leadership. I think, uh, you know, clearly some of these issues brought into a little brighter light following the Ferguson, you know, situation. But we, we ought ought to have been prioritizing this a long time ago. It's not right to have a system in our state where we've got municipalities that are basically funding the basic operations of government through traffic fines. Uh, it's not the way we should be operating government. So I, I'm very optimistic that, that the House is going to be able to move forward on that. Um, will there be some changes? I'm sure there will be, um, but I don't think that those will be the kinds of of uh, changes that will dramatically alter the the purpose or the intent of, of the bill. Yeah, so.
0: yeah, I think one of the biggest changes to this, because this is essentially amending an existing law called right. the Max Creek Law, is one of the complaints about the Max Creek Law was they set these limits of the percentage of revenue that could be in the city's budget, but the enforcement mechanism to it was always a little bit questionable. What came out of the Senate I think is kind of almost enforcement on steroids. Not only does, you know, basically if you go over that limit, you have to turn it over to schools, but if you basically ignore the uh, call to do that, you could end up losing, for example, if you're in St. Louis County, your share of the sales tax revenue and could even force, face a disincorporation election, which is a big issue in the St. Louis County area. Would you expect those type of enforcement mechanisms to be a source of contention, or do you think that that's going to be one of the things that maybe stay no matter what
2: changes? Well, I I think I don't know that they, that I'd call them a point of contention, but maybe a point of discussion. I think what what we want from a policy standpoint in the House is is the same as what the the, the Senate wants, and that's a system where municipalities aren't financing you know their basic operations through you know very large percentage. Uh, uh, of that revenue coming from traffic fines, so I think the House is going to look at those enforcement um, mechanisms. I think we'll also look at at the percentages and make sure that you know we're allowing well-run municipalities to continue to do traffic enforcement and DUI enforcement and the things that that need to happen in those municipalities, but get away from the situation where you've got you know in some cases eighty percent of a municipality's revenue coming uh, from traffic fines. That's just not not right, and and I think part of the broader problem of of distrust in 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 government that we're seeing in certain parts of the state
1: now um, there are other pieces of legislation or or other efforts that are being made regarding uh, in related to the ferguson unrest right and i know that there's some dissidents that were supposed to be in the capitol today uh, pushing for various things do you think aside from the court bill do you think there's any other pieces of legislation related to the ferguson unrest that might get through the general assembly this year
2: I think there's still an open question. I think our focus uh, in the House side and, and on the House Republican side particularly has been, you know, to look at, at you know, some of the more, uh, you know, broader questions of, of how you av- address kind of the, the broader uh Problems that that we see in a community like Ferguson, and I think important to keep in mind, you know, the the situation in Ferguson isn't unique to Ferguson. Um, some of the challenges in in that community are the same we see in rural Missouri, and there's the same as you see in other parts of the state. Dealing with an area that feels very isolated economically, you deal with an area that feels very isolated in terms of quality education opportunities. You deal with an area that that has. Um, distrust for law enforcement we need to look at what the root causes of those problems are and and try to address them and I you know I think one of the most important things the legislatures working on this year that has the potential to have a big impact in in both st. Louis City and st. Louis County is this education transfer issue um, it's an issue that you know, occupied a, a lot of the legislatures time last year it's an issue that's going to occupy a really huge percentage of our time this year and the ability to get school children into to better school buildings and better school districts, I think ought to be a priority for every single member of the legislature. And, you know, I think if, when you look at the number of, of the things that could be really crowning achievements for this legislative session, I think the transfer law has the potential to be one of those.
1: Now, are there any key changes that you're looking at in the transfer proposal this year compared to last year, the one well, that got vetoed?
2: Yeah, obviously the one big change from from last year's bill is we, we had a, a uh, private option provision in last year's bill. Uh, it was a very limited private option provision but uh, that provision is, is gone from the bill and it, in exchange for some uh, reform to our charter school law and, and some other yeah. things. So that's the one big change and um, you know there's some differences between the House version and the Senate version and hopefully we'll be able to get that bill to, to conference committee before uh, in, in the next two weeks and, and get that closer to completion.
0: One other issue that I, I, I don't think we talked about before the show, but one thing that I do want to ask you about is it, it's, it's the situation with the auditor vacancy because it really parallels a situation that occurred in Illinois earlier this year where um, the comptroller passed away before her term started. And the Democrats who are in control of the legislature there changed the law to prompt a special election in 2016 because, in their words, they didn't think it was fair to the voters to have somebody in that office who was basically unelected for four years. Now, with the passing of Tom Schweik, we have a situation where Governor Nixon is about to appoint an auditor that's going to be there, I think, for the next three years and nine months, essentially. Has there been any talk in the legislature maybe not doing it retroactively? Because I don't think they can. I don't think they can. But maybe changing the law to where if there's a situation like this that occurs again, that there would be a special election in the next election as opposed to having somebody who is there for basically an entire term, essentially.
2: Yeah, we, we haven't talked about it specifically, or at least I haven't talked about it specifically in, in, in the context of what's happened over the last couple of weeks. But it's been an issue that the legislature's talked about um, you know numerous times in, in the past. And I know my, my former colleague now, Congressman Jason Smith, had legislation on at least a couple of different occasions to to do exactly that. Uh, I am certain that there will be a you know, a renewed look at how that statute operates. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's an issue that, that intuitively will make sense to a lot of voters, and that is you know, they want a chance to decide who their statewide elected officials are. And um, when you have a, a, a tragic situation like, like the one we've, we've dealt with over the last couple of weeks, um, you know, having uh, the governor be able to appoint an auditor to essentially fill an entire four-year term um, is I think something's probably not the right the right balance to strike in Missouri.
0: Yeah,
2: is there any way? I,
0: but I, as Joe kind of mentioned, I don't think there's any way to make this retroactive. No. At, I, at I don't this believe point. that there is.
1: Well, because don't you need the vote of the public on this? Yeah, I haven't looked specifically constitutional at constitutional
2: the, now, the, vac- the how the vacancy gets filled is a, is a statutory change, but I haven't looked specifically at the issue of whether it could be uh, used retroactively, but, but that explanation, I think, makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think so, too. Um, so I think we're going to close this out here. I just want to thank uh, Representative Richardson for being here, but I do want to make one correction to myself. Uh, we had Lieutenant Governor Kinder on the show, and he is a Southeast Missouri native. Although I'm not sure if he, he lives there full time,
1: Cape Charlie. So, so yes. I don't,
0: I don't think I can make that 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 glowing designation that I did at the beginning of the show. But I will. Amend it slightly by saying you are the first sitting state representative from
2: southeast Missouri to be on our show. I'll take it. And still the first Poplar Bluffian, right? Uh, yeah. Yes. And,
0: and that's the most important part here. I, we all agree that Poplar Bluff is superior
2: to Cape Girardeau. Well, as, as <laughs> I don't know we, about we, that. Let's take it as, into that. Yes. As long as we've clarified that, then I, then I feel good about it. No disrespect to my friends in Cape. Absolutely. And
0: they, they filmed Gone Girl there, and that was a great movie. They so, did.
2: To, to close this out, you can follow
0: all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at J Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at...
1: jmanis. Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S.
0: And how would we follow you on Twitter, Representative you Richardson? You can follow me at Rep. T. Richardson. Thank you very much. And until next week, thank you for listening. So long.